Live on Facebook. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Voices for Change show, hosted by Tracy Schott, the creator of the award-winning film Finding Jen's Voice, and our guest host for today's show, Kelsey McKay, a former district attorney, assistant district attorney, and founder of the nonprofit organization Respond Against Violence. Today's guest is Kristen Troken, a survivor of domestic violence and sexual assault. Uh, the theme for today's show is re-traumatization of the criminal justice system for survivors of gender-based violence, a heavy topic for sure. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, producer of the show and founder of Incandescent Radio and Incandescent TV. Honored to be here and introduce you to Kristen, who was named a plaintiff in a class action lawsuit against the city and county that failed her. She is bringing a positive change in her local community. When she's not balancing professional life, virtual learning, and advocacy, you'll find her at the park chasing her six-year-old son, Liam. So I'm going to turn this over to Tracy. Welcome to your show. Uh, and I can't wait to hear this conversation today. Me too. Thanks so much, Hope. So it's really fun to have um, Kelsey co-hosting. Um, she is, as uh, Hope pointed out the former ADA uh, for Travis County in Austin, Texas. And um, she's got lots of experience in dealing with the criminal justice system. And since leaving the DA's office is now really working to try and change things from the outside in, the inside out, and from all angles. Um, she's highly respected as a trainer and um, a teacher of uh, legal issues surrounding domestic violence. And normally you would find her zipping all over the country, but thanks to the pandemic, she is uh, coming to us virtually from uh, Texas. So welcome Kelsey and welcome Kristen. I'm really excited to hear this conversation and uh, present it to our audience. So take it away, Kelsey. Excited to be here. Thanks, Tracy. Um, you know, I. I don't know exactly which way to introduce Kristen. She is both a survivor and a incredible powerhouse of a woman. Um, and, you know, I'm going to let her kind of give you her background, but she is a survivor who has used her voice to create systems change, which is something since I left the DA's office about four and a half years ago, that's really been my focus as well. Having worked on the inside, I was I, I am in tune with some of the things that happened regularly, but it wasn't really until I left the DA's office and started getting calls from survivors, victims, families, and where I saw the impact of those systemic gaps um, and the kind of negative impact it had on survivors and their families. And, you know, that kind of brought me to uh, to meet Kristen and I'll let her, I'll let her tell that story, but she has worked with us and is always willing to share her experience and to fight not only for her own justice, but for the justice of other survivors who are out there. Thank you, Kelsey. Um, I have to say that it is pretty impressive for you to say such strong words about me, considering when I first met you, I was at rock bottom, like as crazy feeling as crazy can be looking for somebody who was in the right field, who could hear me, who would want to listen to me and want to understand me. And you were the first person that actually provided that for me. And 
I can picture back to it as if it were yesterday. And I'm sure that not everybody can, but it was so emotional for me to muster up the strength to reach out, to find my support system when everything around you is failing, everything that you think you're taught to do, the next right things to do um, was just failing. And I didn't know what to do. So I mustered up the strength to call some local professionals who um, were well-esteemed and, and had the credibility behind them. And when I picked up the phone to call Kelsey, she actually answered the phone and I just froze. I was expecting a dial tree, a secretary. I think I put my foot in my mouth 45 times within the first 30 seconds. And you know, um, that brings up a really good question, which is, you know, we met, you know, your case was well into the criminal justice system when you reached out to me. And I think a lot of survivors of their families, when they report a crime, they have certain expectations or images or assumptions about how the criminal justice system works and, you know, that it just functions normally when it comes to survivors. Can we talk a little bit about what were the things that were building up? What were the things that happened that made you feel like you had to begin to advocate for yourself in this case? Well, I feel like we all grow up with the idea that if somebody commits a crime and they get caught, they will be punished for it. And when you are in the middle of it and you're hearing things like, yes, the crime occurred, but we don't have enough evidence to convict him. We're not sure that evidence is compelling enough. It, you start going down, or I personally started going down this level of cognitive dissonance I had never known. I called the people who are meant to protect me. I am now going through the system that is meant to do justice and I had never felt more unsafe and more um, victimized in my entire life. And so when I realized that I needed to pick up the phone and call somebody is when I realized I was losing touch with myself, honestly. Kristen, can, can you tell our audience a little bit about the abuse? Um, just a little bit of background before you reached out to Kelsey. Um, you you had a, a short-term abusive relationship, but it escalated pretty quickly. So maybe just a little bit of background about that. Yeah, it, it escalated very quickly. It wasn't a long relationship at all. Um, and when I put an end to it, I'm, I'm still an empathetic human being. When I put an end to it, I didn't want to be mean or nasty. And somehow that left him with the impression to keep showing up. Uh, I put a, my foot down on that. And then that led to me being stalked for months. Um, and then it was a series of events back to back to back in such a short amount of time. And one that was progressively worse than the other. So him showing up, me asking him to leave constantly to the point where I was being stalked to the point where I went out for lunch on my birthday and came home and my house had been broken into. And it was proven to be him he pawned my belongings at the pawn shop using his ID right next door. And it, even down to those minuscule details, he never got in trouble for it. I mean, you know, he stole it, but in the law enforcement's eyes, well, you got your belongings back. So the crime has been undone. Well, and Kristen, with that, I know I, we want you to continue the story, but I think you bring a really good point up, which is so often we hear uh, people on the outside saying, why didn't you just leave? And that's a perfect example of you did, but abusers don't always let you go. 
and they continue to try to control and stalk and impact your life, no matter what you do, whether you report or not. So that that's kind of the background to the the main event, I guess, um, that resulted in criminal charges. So talk us through that a little bit. I, honestly, if you were to look at everything on paper and, and take an analytical eye to it, black and white, this is escalating behavior. And so the more I was assertive with my boundaries, the faster and the more aggressive it escalated. It resulted in my door being broken down and being strangled and raped. Um, and at the end of the day, he bond forfeited twice with those charges, uh, or excuse me, his strangulation and rape charges were completely dismissed. He held on to a charge from a previous relationship of family violence that was uh, deferred, that was re-enlisted. So it's the only charge that happened. He got arrested, it dropped, but it re-enlisted another charge. So for all of the things, you're talking about two victims over the course of a year and a half, multiple charges, his entire sentence that he served was six weeks. Talk to us about some of the, the barriers. I think this is helpful for people to understand because I so often get, well, did she call the police? Did they report it? Prior to the assault that you did report, can you talk to me a little bit about um, what are those added barriers uh, to, to actually reporting a crime when it is related to someone that you have a relationship with or who, who, who you've had a relationship with. Did you find or confront any of those barriers or can you help us identify what they were? Well, honestly, I feel like if it was a stranger attack, it's very easy to say, this happened to me, this happened to me, this happened to me. When you're in a relationship, an intimate relationship or even just a close friendship um, and a crime is, has been committed, you start to kind of distrust yourself did I invite these kind of behaviors because the relationship does exist? I, and I don't, I can't speak for everyone. I know for myself, I had to question, well, did I lead him on? Did I make him think this was okay in any way? Did I, did he think I was playing the dumb girl game where I don't want you to be around, but really I do. No, I wasn't playing that game. It and were any of the behaviors before the assault reported, like the stalking behavior, had you ever reported any of those behaviors to the police? All of them. And what was the response you would get from police? Um, well, when my house was broken into, the police had told me, well, he had previously just lived here three weeks prior to this. So technically he can still claim it as his residence. So you would have um, curious Every, everything that I had been told for every single charge I had filed or report I had made was just, it seemed like textbook reasons to just not take it seriously. Yeah. And then talk to us a little bit what you're comfortable sharing about that night. So at that night, he showed up to my house extremely intoxicated behind the wheel of his car. Uh, the front bumper had been hanging on by a thread. I, to this day, I'm not sure if that was an accident that happened that night or prior to that night. Um, it, it had to have happened within a four day period because I had camera images of him still stalking me. And I don't know if I just let my guard down. It was late around 11:15, and I felt a little empathy for him. I, part of me didn't feel right letting him get behind the wheel of a car and just drive off. 
And so I offered him a cup of coffee and I had left over dinner um, because my son at that time, if you think feeding a six-year-old is difficult, feeding a four-year-old is impossible. Uh, and so I started feeding him, hoping he would just sober up a little bit to get, I can civilly convince him to get an Uber. Um, and I think that one thing led to another. I, I do think that this man had sociopathic behaviors. Uh, and I think that I was still dealing with a lot of trauma. One thing led to another and a situation started out consensual. Uh, and I had almost like a snap into reality and I wanted to stop it immediately. So I, I rescinded my consent and apparently that wasn't accepted. Um, so I was strangled and forced down uh, to the point where I couldn't breathe. And at, at certain intermittent times, I had fingers shoved down my throat. So when I would try to gasp for air, it would be blocked, but I'd get some. Um, and then the next thing I know is when he released, I had, I got punched in the face so hard. I remember exactly feeling like I had been hit in the face so hard, but I felt it on the other side of my face. Um, and I thought I had burst an eardrum on the other side of my face. It was so excruciating and it just seemed so strange to me. I was hit on this side. Why is it so painful on this side? Um, and I, I didn't know what to do. I grabbed my phone. I ran upstairs. I locked myself in my son's room. I actually started Googling if I bursted my eardrum. I remember that. Uh, and I didn't call the police until the next day. Based on your prior reports where nothing was done, did that change your confidence or faith in how the system would respond to you when you reported this more escalated type of violence? Absolutely. At that point, I had zero faith in the system. Um, I mean, I, I could have my house broken into and, well, I, I was recited a law that supposedly if you leave your toothbrush somewhere for three nights, you can claim residency. I still don't think that exists, but I remember thinking the audacity, like, ex excuse me, I don't care about this. There's a lot of laws out there that nobody takes seriously, honestly. Yeah. Um, then talk about what you had to go through once you reported. So what was, did they come to your house? Did you meet the detective? I imagine you got a sexual assault exam. Talk us through what you had to go through just to make this report. So I waited until I dropped my son off at school. I actually, it was 5.15 in the morning and I heard the door close from him leaving my house and I picked up the phone and called a girlfriend. Luckily she answered. There's not too many girlfriends who will answer at 5.15 in the morning. Uh, and so I'm super happy she did. And we kind of talked through the plan because I needed to talk it through to somebody. I was still almost in denial of what had happened. Um, and so I knew I was going to wait until I dropped my son off at school. And then I was going to call and I was going to report it. And that was going to be the end. I didn't at the time anticipate the state exam um, I really think at the initial start of the conversation with the police, I hadn't really put two and two together that I was raped. It was, it started off consensual. I said, no, things had escalated. He got aggressive. It wasn't in my mind, in my head, I hadn't 
put it together. I knew I was strangled. I knew I was fearful for my life. I knew I couldn't breathe. I knew that I saw stars for the first time. I'm the first time in my life. I thought that was a cartoon thing. No, no, I saw stars. That's a real thing. Um, Kristen, you bring up a really good point. And Tracy, I'd love to hear your thoughts with this, having spoken to so many survivors with your film Finding Jen's Voice. But it's so interesting, I think, how often we see victims don't even recognize that they're experiencing abuse, right? Either, you know, sometimes they can identify if there's a physical assault, but, you know, absent a physical assault, and sometimes even with a physical assault, it can be very confusing. And the same goes for sexual assault. Practitioners, right, we know all of the elements. But especially when you bring in fear and survival and freezing or appeasing, you know, this is something that victims doubt their own, uh, you know, recognition or identification that they've experienced a crime. So when we talk about like, why didn't you call the police immediately? Why didn't you, why didn't you tell the police officers all of this? You know, it's as complicated for survivors who don't have a playbook like abusers do to even recognize that they are experiencing abuse. And the downside for that is it tends to mean they don't adver advocate for themselves in the system. Instead, they are apologizing or taking responsibility for something that's really not their fault. So I'm curious, you know, is that something you saw a lot with the survivors and finding Jen's voice? I, it's something I've yeah. certainly seen. And then hearing Kristen, you know, I've, I've, I've seen it and heard it over and over again. Um, it, you know, the, the pathway to abuse is, it's a, it's a path, right? It's, it happens in stages. It doesn't happen all at once. And, you know, um, Janine latest says in, in my film, and it's something I I'll always remember, she says, they don't hit you on the first day. You know, um, it, the, you know, and somebody else said, you know, I fell in love with the charming guy, you know, I mean, he was charming and I cared about him and I was empathic toward him just as you were, um, Kristen, you know, I felt empathy. I, you know, this wasn't somebody who was always a monster. This is somebody that I had a relationship with for a reason. But when that behavior would come around, there would be all of this kind of dancing and second guessing around what did I do to um, allow this to happen, you know? So for better or worse, most of the women I know consider themselves the caregivers of their relationships. You know, that, they're in, that if things are going well, they're like, yeah, all right, things are going well in our relationships. When things are going badly, they're like, all right, what did I do, what did I do to set him off? What did I do to give him the wrong idea? I actually had women in the film who reached out to me to be part of the film, but never had identified themselves as abuse victims Absolutely. in their lives. And you know, when, when victims do identify that what's happening to them is not okay, as Kristen identified stalking behavior and these previous ones. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about how that made you lose faith in the criminal justice system, Kristen, you know, you no longer relied on them. But on the other hand, what is the message that is sent to offenders when, you know, they are testing boundaries and then they get away with it? You know, they're going to test a bigger boundary. And in this case, it escalated because he had really been given permission by law enforcement and not held accountable. And so, you know, I'm curious, Kristen, if you noticed his response to when you would report these things, I don't know if there was communication between the two of you, but often we will see victims try to appease their perpetrator knowing that they can't rely on the system. So agreeing to meet up with them for dinner because they don't want to meet up with them alone in the house. You know, these kinds of uh, complicated 
I guess, facts that can confuse law enforcement and confuse prosecutors to believe that you weren't that scared. So I'm curious if you saw him respond to the lack of accountability in any way. Like the true sociopath he was, uh, I feel like you're not going to be shocked or surprised when I tell you exactly how he responded. He, after the first two calls to the police that were of the less serious circumstances, uh, it was all escalating behavior. So it's early on in the beginning, he decided to show me that I can call the police and not be taken seriously, but he can have them take, take him seriously for whatever he wants. Um, and what happened was he had a disc golf bag that I returned to him. He was at work. I put it in the bed of his truck at his car. So I didn't have to see him. I knew the parking lot was uh, secured. It had footage, cameras, everything. I thought it was a, a foolproof plan. And I got a call 48 hours later from a police officer who said that I returned his items covered in dog feces inside the bag. And so he, for whatever reason, I know I didn't do that, but now I'm having the police calling me for something A, I didn't do, and it's dog poop, I'm sorry, I, versus my house being broken into or being stalked or being threatened. And I just, at that point, I knew he was using it as an instrument of abuse and it was working. And, you know, that's a really great point. And it's something we very commonly see, which is the abuser will often sometimes be the one to call 911. And they set victims up and their credibility up um, in advance. And then they use, just like you said, you know, anyone familiar with the power and control wheel, I really encourage you to look at the post-separation power and control wheel, where it really does talk about how institutions like the criminal justice system and CPS can be used as a tool to instill fear. And obviously the threat of I could have you arrested or you're going to look crazy is a very real um, path that often follows. You know, one of the most astonishing stories in um, Finding Jen's Voice uh, was by Mary, who at the time was living in Arizona, and they had a law that if uh, the police were called on a domestic violence um, case, somebody went to jail. And, so, and, and the somebody in many cases, now that I, you know, represent clients, I'm outside of, I'm no longer a DA, is how often I'm representing women who under the circumstances had been strangled and fought back as you were justified to do, um, who got arrested. So yeah. then I strangled sometimes to the point of unconsciousness, they get arrested for assault. Mary, Mary was arrested for throwing a sippy cup at her husband after he had, he had broken her cell phone, wouldn't let her out, the door was in her face. She said she just got so frustrated. They had three little children. She was still nursing one of them, picked up a, a sippy cup and threw it at him and hit him in the face. And he called the police. She spent a day and a half in jail. Um, he never spent a day in jail for multiple times that he had, you know, physically abused her. Um, and it's just, it's heartbreaking. Um, and, um, you know, it's really disturbing that the criminal justice system can be so easily ma manipulated by perpetrators. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've represented women and been involved in cases where after a strangulation, they shoot them or they and they kill them. 
And those women, women have been charged with murder. My most recent one, luckily, eventually it fell into the hands of a prosecutor who understood domestic violence and strangulation and eventually charges were dismissed. But in fact, I'm doing a training for our board of pardon and paroles because how often I'm seeing these types of cases in the system. And, you know, I think that that adds a huge barrier to reporting because victims know that they're going to, they're already set up to have looked crazy. And so Kristen, I want to follow through, kind of make sure we can fit everything in. And now let's talk a little bit about the stain exam. So, you know, you're kind of going through all of these different steps. So I'd let, I, you know, I want to talk about the good and the bad. What did you find when you got your sexual assault exam? I still feel like I was processing the new information that I was allowing myself to accept, which was the reality. I had just been raped by somebody that I thought I cared about at one point that knew it wasn't working, but never thought it would really ever get that far. The same exam, I can't say it was pleasant because it's uncomfortable. You're vulnerable. Um, you're having every inch of your body photographed and then diagrammed on a piece of paper and then photographed again with a ruler next to it. And you're asked questions over and over again, but there's a weird sense of comfort involved in it. But I had really amazing SANE nurses. I, well, I had one woman in training, so I understand a little bit more about the process. I probably had a more thorough SANE exam because of that. Um, but there is something to be said about the comfort they provided. Yeah. And I mean, those of you who aren't familiar with SANE nurses, so forensic nurse examiners um, is really what they are. But what they're, I guess, most uh, known for is doing sexual assault exams. And so after a victim, if she, even if they don't report a sexual assault to the police, but gets and wants to collect that evidence, they are interviewed and talked to and their body is examined by a forensic nurse examiner who not only has the medical training, but also has training in trauma, not just physical, but the emotional, psychological, the well being, the safety. And so often I hear people say, well, maybe the patrol officers didn't you know, treat me how I would have liked to have been treated. Um, but when I got the SANE exam, that felt different. So talk to us about how being interviewed or talked by, uh, to by the SANE nurse was different than law enforcement. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head because when I had law enforcement at my house, I was explaining about the strangulation and she asked me details of how it occurred, what led up to it. And so I was explaining it to him. Uh, and he said, so what you're saying is you're raped. I hadn't thought about it yet. I said, well, I, I guess I was. Well, I guess, or I was, I, I was, um, okay. Yes. Yes. Officer. I was. And then I felt like at that moment, it was, okay, well, I'm not gonna ask you any more questions. We're gonna have crime scene investigations come in, uh, take a couple pictures of the, the crime scene. And I have a female officer on the way to speak to you. Okay. Uh, I, I, almost as if, as soon as I said I was raped, it was like, you're dirty, I can't touch you. Um, wow. And so I had a female officer who came and she didn't really ask me too many questions other than, are you willing to have a safe, uh, same exam performed? And I said, I was, and she followed me to the place, which I thought was a bit aggressive, but I guess they want to know that you made it. Uh, and 
that was about it. And a lot of survivors, you know, Kristen, um, not going to use the phrase was lucky enough, but Kristen lives in a jurisdiction where there is access to a SANE exam outside the hospital setting. So many survivors of sexual assault don't know where to go. Not all hospitals, clinics provide SANE exams. And most victims have not researched that before they're sexually assaulted. And so many just go to the nearest hospital. Um, and if they even have a program that provides forensic exams, sometimes the wait's five, 10, 12 hours. And they're expected just to, you know, after this violent trauma, um, with no comfort, likely no support to sit in that waiting room. And no one wants to do that. Like you want to take a shower. And, you know, so I think one part of Kristen's experience that can be a good model um, is the use of what in Austin is called Eloise House, which is a clinic attached to our shelter and with our forensic nurses are there. And it's it's created in kind of a soft setting. So instead of a clinic setting, um, you know, it's kind of like a living room. And I know on our webinar, we had Tracy Matheson from Project Beloved who helps to install soft interview rooms. And so I think, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, I know it wasn't a soft interview room like we do for law enforcement, but Kristen, I'm curious about how it felt to have that type of setting as opposed to, a hospital setting where you maybe had to sit and wait with the general public for five or six hours? Well, I was, that's a great question because I was lucky enough to have to do both. Because after I left my SANE exam, the SANE nurse had asked me specifically to go to follow up at the ER for x-rays because a lot of times with strangulation situations, there is internal damage that can be drastic if unnoticed. And so drastic and she said well yeah I mean it can eventually it can cause death and I was like whoa she's I don't think that's happening but yes you need you need to and so I said okay um I went and picked up my son grabbed dinner I didn't rush by any means to go but I ended up at the ER later that after that evening and the complete attitude was different even it's not even just the environment so I feel like when you ask me that I'm going to have a biased answer because you can tell just in the way that they responded in the empathy that they had. They, the nurses at Eloise house were trauma informed nurses. The doctor I met at the ER that evening could care less if I was traumatized or not. Uh, I think her response, she spent three minutes with me and said, you don't need an x-ray. If you were going to have any damages, I'd see a lot more bruising than what I see right now. Uh, yeah, which is, of course, interesting because we know many strangulation cases don't have any external injuries, but can have life-threatening underlying injuries and swelling and all types of complications that can occur, you know, immediately, acutely, or, you know, later, months later. And um, so I'm curious about what type of follow-up investigation was there and what was that experience like for you? So the follow-up investigation from law enforcement looked something along the lines of, can you come in here, give a formal statement? That's what they had asked me to do. So I said, yes, it's not my first time doing this. So I went in to go give a formal statement. Um, I had not prepared myself for the first question he was going to ask me, which was, can you call him? Uh, no. My answer is no, no, I cannot call him. I don't want to call him. I don't want to talk to him. He said, no, no, we want to get it recorded. I said, well, I'm sorry, I have it blocked through my carrier. 
It's not as simple as just deleting it off of a list. And so that I was really actively trying to get around this step. Um, and I don't know if that's because I had experienced something so traumatic and yet I still had empathy for this man. It, it, that doesn't ever go away. You think it's crazy what you've gone through, but you still care. As long as you're a human being, you're still going to care about other human beings. And so I knew I didn't want to talk to him. I didn't want anything to do with him. And so the officer pulls out a burner phone. I was not getting out of this. <laughs> um, so I had no option. I called. He didn't answer. And then we go into the interview process. And so you're going to ask me questions about that incident about that night and I'm still heart racing because you just made me call him and to this day I still don't think that makes any sense because you want to you want me to give you an accurate detailed account of what happened but let's go ahead and just spike your adrenaline real quick put you through something traumatic and now you're ready tell us what happened it doesn't make sense um and so when I left that day, I, I was even further into this thick cognitive dissonance. Nothing made sense anymore. I felt like the Truman Show. What was the transition like as the case proceeded from the police department to the investigations over to the prosecutor's office? So the detective had called me to tell me that the sexual assault was being dropped because they thought they had stronger evidence for the strangulation and that I shouldn't have gotten my hopes up for both of them being charged because they always just take one. So I said, okay, all right. Well, if that's your process, I'm not in law enforcement, so I don't know. So I said, okay. And then that was the last I had ever heard from him. It moved into the district attorney's office and that looked a lot like a cat and mouse race. I was constantly trying to send emails, phone calls, ways I can document. I started documenting how often my outreach was because it was so substantially different from the return calls I get. I mean, we're looking at 15 emails and seven phone calls with voicemails to get a return phone call. I had, I had no knowledge of anything that was going on. No idea. Um, I, I knew that the protective order that was given when he was arrested was wrong. It only had one address. It didn't cover my son's daycare. It didn't cover my work. Uh, 24 hours after he was released from, from jail with a monitor on his ankle, he was sitting outside my job. Nobody took that seriously. In fact, I was told, well, it wasn't listed on his paperwork, so he didn't know. He knows where I work. Right. He, he didn't know he wasn't supposed to be there. Oh, uh, okay. So communication between the DA's office or law enforcement and yourself, you had to really put effort into advocating for yourself just simply to know what was going on. In fact, yes. And in fact, if they ever made a mistake and I called them out wanting to know why, for instance, like, the ankle monitor outside my work, they would return that call really quick. Well, here I have all the answers for why that happened. Are you satisfied now? I guess. And then once they had just appeased me enough for a situation that I knew didn't feel right, shouldn't have been done that way. Once they had appeased me enough, then it would radio silence. 
And, you know, I think one of the big challenges for survivors who enter this system is you don't have an advocate or your own attorney. And so when the system is foreign to you, there's no translator. So you really have to rely on law enforcement or the prosecutors and trust what they say. And so, like you said, oh, we never take two charges. I mean, I know that not to be true, um, but a victim wouldn't necessarily know that. And when there's nobody there translating the reality, you don't have much ammunition to go back and say, well, hold on a second. And so you start to feel not only minimized and invalidated, but as though this is normal, they normalize, oh no, this is what happens. And so I'm curious about you know, that part of it and how did things become different when you had help to translate that? This is, I think, around the time you reached out to me, if I recall. It was around that time. Um, I had been so confused about the reality of everything. I had thought my entire life that the judicial system works this way and I'm experiencing it completely different. And so I had just, I'd hit my wit's end. I had started to stop trusting myself in almost all areas. And that's when I knew I needed somebody, somebody to help me understand the process, somebody to help me understand why I had gotten it so wrong on my views of what this system should have, should have looked like. I felt that if I had just had, had a little bit more knowledge I could overcome this and I won't feel so, I don't want to say confused because it's, it's almost like, you know, it's supposed to be one way, but you're, it's not happening that way. And nobody seems to be blinking an eye at it. Um, and so when I reached out to Kelsey and, and finally had somebody that said, Oh no, honey, it's not supposed to be this way. Um, it, to have your own, soul validated after you started really just not trusting it, not believing in yourself anymore. I mean, the level of detriment it does to your self-esteem because you can't, you feel unworthy of even the simplest civil rights, human rights. Um, What's really upsetting about your story, Kristen, is that it's, um, it's a re-abuse, you know, it's, it's the, the criminal justice system in your case um, really just duplicated the experience you had with an abuser. Um, and that is so not supposed to happen. Um, you know, it's, it, when you reach out for help is where we wanna see um, your healing begin, but instead you, you had more hurt happening at a time when you should have been on the pathway to healing. Um, so that I, find, I find it it's just so upsetting, but it's also not necessary. And one of the things we did talk about in the webinar, which I'll give everybody uh, a link to later, um, is that there are, there are alternatives. And one of the things that, that we encourage people to do is to reach out to domestic violence organizations who frequently have a legal advocate um, right and right from the start so that you're not, you know, you're not at, at rock bottom the way you were when you reached out to Kelsey um, because not everybody can reach Kelsey. <laughs> yeah, please don't try. But you know, that is kind of the build out of this nonprofit is that 
you know, I have learned so much. I, I, you know, I learned a lot as a DA for 12, 13 years. Um, I thought I knew everything about strangulation, domestic violence prosecution, but it really wasn't until the last four or four and a half years when I've been on the outside of the system looking in, whether it is me helping a family or a client or a victim who reaches out to me, or even like a detective or prosecutor who, you know, is the other half of my consulting work is, it's a totally different experience when I have a victim reach out and I try to navigate and advocate and you know help translate between law enforcement or the DA's office and the survivor. That's an incredibly different experience than when it's the DA or law enforcement reaching out to me because they're already bought in. And you know you're you're fighting not just the case but the system itself and its gender-based attitudes um, and the bias that we have just kind of ingrained in law enforcement when it comes to gender-based violence, especially that which might involve sexual assault, um, also that involves strangulation in the context of sexual assault because perpetrators have really come up with a really good defense, which is they just say it was consensual and rough sex. And because law enforcement knows nothing about that, um, we just go, oh, okay, we can't prove it. And especially in Kristen's case where things began consensually and then that consent was withdrawn, it's kind of insane laws around the state that we are seeing and rulings of judges putting that burden of proving the lack of consent on victims as opposed to shifting that burden to holding offenders more accountable and saying, how did you know you had consent? Because, you know, victims are controlled by fear. And so what might look like consent is, is often just compliance. But obviously in Kristen's case, you know, there was that act of resistance and an act of deadly force. If anyone's watching the George Floyd trial, you know, these are all types of asphyxiation and they're absolutely terrifying. Um, and, you know, I'd love, Kristen, if we could jump to and you talk to us a little bit about the ultimate outcome, what happened with the case and the reasons they gave you. And then I'd love to just hear a little bit about the impact on your life and long term, not only of the abuse, but more specifically with how you were treated by the system and how that compared to the abuse you experienced. There's a lot. There's a lot to go now. I would like to quickly piggyback off of something that Tracy had said that it, it is re-traumatization. It is just completely re-traumatized. There's no better word for it. But what you're looking at is you're having a victim who now is put through another trauma. You're setting a victim up for another trauma. You have a perpetrator who just got away with it. So the system is meant to, that is meant to stop this, I think, if you look at the correlation, it's perpetuating it. It's creating a larger problem, a deeper problem. Um, what happened with my case, sorry, I, I didn't wanna miss that, but what happened with my case, as soon as I started building up the support system that I needed, it started with Kelsey. I, my strength, my uh, courage grew from there. I was an advocate for myself. I had an expert to do an analysis of my SANE exam. I presented the district attorney with a pretty little package and I said, here's everything you need. I still fought for knowledge. I still fought for communication, for conversations so that I could understand what was going on. And then I was told after weeks of when is this going to be presented to the grand jury? When is this going to be presented? Here is everything you need to present it. I did all your work for you. And then I was told it was no build, no explanation why it was no build. Uh, everything was just kind of fell under 
that they're protected. They absolutely cannot share that information on my case with me. It's, they are protected. It happened. I don't have to explain why. I'm protected from explaining to you why. To fill the audience, just what that what a no bill means is so in felony charges in Texas, if um, like the true charging instrument is an indictment and the process through which that goes is after charges are filed by law enforcement to the DA's office, uh, they then take the case and they present it to grand jury, which is a group of 12 people. It's all done in secret. And the, the grand jury decides whether or not to indict or to not indict. And the not indict is called um, a no bill. Unfortunately, you know, we don't have access to the things that occurred in grand jury and having presented well over thousand, you know, thousands of cases to grand juries, you know, what you do, what you tell them um, and how you present that case in which evidence you present um, sometimes varies from prosecutor to prosecutor and also can vary based on if the prosecutor believes that this is something that they, that is probably not going to be successful in court or that they don't want to prosecute, they can really shift that burden to the grand jury and say, oh, it's not my fault the grand jury did it, you know, rather than dismissing the charges themselves, which they would have to explain. So, you know, unfortunately, that's a tactic that I have seen occur before. Sometimes it's just simply because the prosecutor and um, hasn't given the grand jury the knowledge of, you know, some of the complicated aspects of the case. Um, for all we know, they went in and were completely truthful. Um, we'll just never know. Um, but unfortunately, that really relies on the motivation of the prosecutor in many of those cases and whether that grand jury knows anything about these dynamics. You know, that's just 12 people um, in our community. These are not people who have had tons of training and education. I always train my grand juries um, for hours uh, before I would begin to present to them during a three-month session. But unfortunately, kind of the closure of this case for Kristen was really no explanation and no closure at all. And from my understanding too, and Kelsey, you can talk, you can talk more in depth on this. From my understanding, most strangulation cases, you don't have much visible injury. I had what you would consider visible injury. I had bruising on my neck in the shape of a handprint. I had broken blood vessels in my eyes. And so for you to take that to a grand jury and for them to say, absolutely no way he did it. She must've done it to herself. Not, none of it, even to this day, will ever make sense other than they didn't want to try the case. Did you get any explanation or have a conversation with any of the prosecutors that indicated why, like, did they think you had done it to yourself? No, I know. I asked them, I said, I straight up, do you think I did this to myself? How would I eat? How? No. Or, and um, why? or why? why? Yeah. And so let's talk for a little bit about, um, and in the good and the bad ways of how this has impacted your life. Um, and, and during the course of the prosecution, how it imp impacted both your personal and professional life. And then let's talk about the, the wonderful larger impact this has had. But fill us in on how going through something like this, both the assault and the experience with the system, how that, how that played into your personal and professional life. Well, it, carried, it definitely carried with me for several years after. Uh, I can't say for certain it's because of the event itself or the frustrations of just trying to navigate through the system while the case was still open. But everything seemed to take a more personal tone. 
even in my work settings, I, I could not handle the same kind of criticism of my work without feeling like it was so personal. Like I could not do anything worth achievement or accreditation. And I knew that I'm talented. I knew that I could do things worth achievement and accreditation, but every time something would come up, it would just feel right back into that trigger of, oh, it's of course I'm, I'm worthless. Like I'm Right. You're not even worth being protected. You can get raped and strangled and no one cares. And it just all kind of seemed to hold on to that tone for longer than I would really honestly like to admit um, until I realized that that, that doesn't belong to me. Um, and I I'm, honestly, my heart breaks when I'm afraid of how many women out there still carry a lot of things that don't belong to them. But yeah, I carried it and it was heavy. So let's talk a little bit about what you have done since then um, to achieve positive change. Oh, I stand on the corner and I scream and roar at people like a lion until they look at me. Um, <laughs> in a more socially acceptable version of that, yeah. <laughs> I will talk about the broken system to whoever will listen. I will prepare our children to have a rational idea of what our judicial system looks like. And I will not ever stop fighting until we make rape a crime again. <sighs> yeah, that we prosecute. And what gave you strength through this, Kristen? What were the, you know, I think there's a lot of people out there who are experiencing this exact kind of scenario. What were some of the things that gave you strength through it? Honestly, I wish I could stand here and say that I am some superhuman and I reached deep down inside my soul and I mustered up the self-love to pull myself through it. But I was at such a low that I could not look at my son while he was sleeping without crying, hoping that he would never feel that way. And I knew that if I continued to feel that way, he was only gonna learn that was acceptable. And so but I lived vicariously through wanting him to have a good life. You know, but here I am, I feel worthy of it now. So at least we got past that. I, you know, I think it speaks volume. It's not uncommon with survivors I've worked with that, you know, being a mom is part of what saves them, you know, remind, you know, being reminded of what really love feels like is something that really gets survivors through a lot. And, you know, I see so many cases where I really do believe the end goal is for the abuse of the abuser is to drive the victim so insane that they commit suicide. And then it really validates their claims. Oh, she's crazy. Um, and I cannot tell you the powerful impact on most survivors who I am close with, um, the role that having children played in, and not in a codependent way, but in a hopeful way and in a purposeful way. And I really do think it is just the ultimate honoring of motherhood um, that our children, you know, we birth them and we work so hard to keep them alive. But really in the end, sometimes when you are taken to a place where you no longer believe love is even real and that you can't trust anyone, you know, you look down at their sleeping body or you get a hug and, you know, you are reminded that there is true love in this world. And we, no matter 
no matter if someone didn't protect us, we have to protect them. And I think that brings in that empathy and that hope um, that so many survivors I work with show and you know, the resiliency that you've shown is incredible. She's really dedicated her life to this now. And um, so I'm so incredibly proud of what Kristen has been through and it really is a journey. Well, I really appreciate you sharing your journey with us, Kristen. Um, I think that uh, we have a lot to learn from you and, and I'm sure a lot more people are gonna be learning from you in the future as well. Um, thank you for sharing. Thank you, Kelsey, for uh, being with us today. Um, and thanks everybody for tuning in. Um, we, uh, Kristen and Kelsey were both part of a webinar that we did through Voices for Change a couple of weeks ago where we were talking about beyond defunding and um, helping uh, the police do a better job of um, working with domestic violence and sexual assault survivors. So um, that uh, will soon be available on our website, voicesforchange.net. And I encourage you to go take a peek at it. Um, lots of great information uh, on that webinar. Thanks to both of you for joining us again. And thanks, Hope, for producing this Voices for Change radio. Kristen and I will be speaking at the end of May at the Conference on Crimes Against Women. We're doing a talk called Call Me Crazy, the role of fear and survival in um, these types of investigations. And then also, you know, some of the some of the difficulties I think law enforcement and prosecutors had navigating this case is not understanding the overlap between sexual violence and circulation. And so we have a course that we're also offering as an add-on to Conference on Crimes Against Women called the Sexualization of Strangulation that's a pretty common issue that law enforcement has a difficult time navigating so we'll be talking about consent in a very different way bdsm um how to perform a trauma-informed interview the role of medical exams and so anyone who's interested whether you attend the conference or add it on you can go to the conference on crimes against women and select their strangulation series and we we would love to see you there and have more law enforcement um, and, we can, and, and they can learn more about um, all the trainings that you do at uh, respondagainstviolence.org. Yeah, subscribe. We're just about to start a newsletter. Um, or if you go to McKay Training Consulting, there's information on there. Both of those websites are being updated. But follow us on social media and you'll be able to see notifications there. Terrific. Thank you so much. And uh, thanks again, Hope. We'll well, my pleasure. Thank you all for joining. It's just breathtaking and really horrifying. So if anything we can do at Incandescent to spread the word about how women can defend themselves and stand together, that's, that's our mission. So thank you, Tracy. You're amazing. Thank you, Kelsey and Kristen. Best of luck to you. You are a role model. Yeah. All right. We'll see you all next Tuesday, 1 p.m. Eastern time for another episode of Voices for Change on Incandescent Radio and Incandescent TV featuring Tracy Schott. We'll talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.